The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. How about the West Side Band? They do play request, as it turns out. My name's Jack Wisdom. I've been in a leadership position at Ecclesia for longer than I can remember, and I'm honored to be with you today. Excited for this message. Prayerful that I won't screw it up. So join me in that prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be together, to worship you, to hear from you. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear, hearts that are ready to respond. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the dazed and confused decade of the 1970s, when billions of Americans were falling for the superficial and transient allure of disco music and polyester pantsuits, and some of you are here today, I became a Dallas police officer. I did not become a Dallas police officer because I grew up wanting to be a Dallas police officer. I became a Dallas police officer as a result of a practical joke that got way out of hand. I matriculated to the Dallas Police Officer Academy in 1978. They took one look at me and made me cut off my long, uh, at the time, seemingly immortal hair. They made me shave off my unruly rugby beard. They allowed me to keep the vintage 1970s style village person magnum P.I. standalone police officer mustache, which apparently you had to have to effectively fight crime in the 1970s. I faithfully attended the Dallas Police Academy, diligently pursued my studies, and I acquired the skills and knowledge to be a certified peace officer in the laws of the state of Texas. And when I graduated, they turned me loose on the mean streets of West Dallas with a badge, a Pontiac, a Smith & Wesson 357, a 12-gauge, a 24-inch police baton, a radio, a map, a bulletproof vest, and no clue about what I was getting myself into. I quickly learned that the citizens of the housing projects of West Dallas did not like the police. There was an understandable historical explanation for the anti-police sentiment. There was a legacy of injustice. There were lingering suspicions, generational hard feelings. When the police responded to a call on a hot summer night in the housing projects of West Dallas, large crowds would assemble. And they were not there to cheer us on as we did our duty. It seemed like they were there looking for an opportunity to express their frustration 
and resentment. I was trained when responding to such calls to get in quickly, to treat everyone with civility and respect, to handle the call appropriately, and to get out quickly if possible. Sometimes to expedite my departure, someone from the crowd would throw a bottle or some other projectile in my general direction. I was not looking for trouble, I just kept walking back towards my squad car. I'd been a Christian at that time for about five years. I'd been a young life leader for four years. I had my rough edges and blind spots, and of course I still do, but I was serious about being a faithful follower of Jesus. I was a disciplined and enthusiastic student of the Bible. I found myself in my studies circling back again and again to three chapters from the Gospel of Matthew, often called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if I was working uh, and it was a quiet night, a lull in the action of crime fighting, I would park my squad car on a quiet street and take a moment to read my Bible. I liked the idea that I was actually at that time getting paid to read my Bible by the citizens of Dallas. Later in law school, I learned out that was probably a violation of the First Amendment of the Constitution of these United States. That particular night, I was reading from Matthew chapter 5, passage I had read before. And here's the passage. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may begin to resemble your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Isn't that the way people normally treat one another? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Reading that passage in my squad car, it occurred to me that Jesus meant exactly what he said. And that forced me to ask this question. What does that then mean for me and my 357 and my 12 gauge and my 24 inch police baton? Before I could finish that theological reflection, there was a call on the radio. Burglary of a business, very close by. Burglary in progress. I quickly responded and was the first officer on the scene. The two burglars were still there. So I approached the burglars and I put them up against that wall and the up against the wall tradition. And then uh, I proceeded to uh, uh, search them and then I began to cuff the first guy, and as I was cuffing the first guy, the second guy lunged at me quickly and sunk his teeth into my tricep. Now, you would think if you studied my triceps that he would have broken his teeth. 
But he didn't. His teeth broke in to my tricep. And I understand this was just a business meeting. I get it. Nothing personal. But I took it personally because I feel personally attached to the arm that he was biting. And so I responded to that aggression. I choked out guy number two until he was unconscious using the armbar chokehold, which at the time was permissible police procedure. Well, not the choking when unconscious part. And then I dropped him to the pavement just as backup arrived. For my troubles that night, I got a series of painful shots and a formal complaint for police brutality. A few hours later, as the adrenaline began to wear off, I returned to my theological reflection. And I crystallized the question this way. Can I be the man Jesus calls me to be and still do the job the city of Dallas is paying me to do? I'm not here today to talk about how I ultimately resolved that specific theological question. If you're considering a career in law enforcement and you're willing to buy the barbecue, I can have that conversation with you. I'm here today to talk about a more general application of the mandate to love one's enemies. In the specific context of our deeply divided age of perpetual outrage. What does it mean for us today? If we want to be faithful to Jesus in times like these, because these are strange times, are they not? I've got a law firm in our Houston office uh, is in the historic, beautiful Esperson building in downtown Houston. And another tenant of that building is Senator Ted Cruz. Now, once a week, a relatively small group of people gathers outside the Esperson building to chant and to march and to carry signs to remind Senator Cruz that he's a racist, bigot, homophobe, xenophobe, sexist, misogynistic, Nazi-loving, evildoer, just in case he might have forgotten that week. Now, I'll talk to just about anybody, so <clears throat> I'm coming back from lunch uh, uh, last year when the tax reform legislation was being debated, and I noticed a woman about my age, 60-something, holding a sign and chanting and marching, and her sign said, tax reform is tax porn. That's a thought-provoking sentiment. So I thought I would ask her about it. So I approached uh, this lady, uh, and the conversation went something like this. Me, ma'am. I like your sign. Great assonance. May I ask you what are your specific concerns with the pending tax reform legislation? 
her yelling, you stay out of my uterus. <laughs> Me, yes ma'am, will do. These are our times, brothers and sisters. We didn't pick them, but here we are. Would you believe that Jesus lived in even crazier times than we live in? Judea and Palestine in the first century were politically subjugated and dominated by the Roman Empire. The Jews who lived there had deep resentment bordering on revolutionary fervor against the Romans. And of course, the Jews also had problems with the Samaritans. And then the Jews didn't all get along with each other because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were deeply divided over theological issues and other cultural issues. And of course, everybody hated the tax collectors. And of course, the zealots uh, had their own uh, agenda. And it was just rancorous times of division where everybody had enemies. So with that in mind, let's go back to our passage, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may begin to resemble your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Isn't that the way people normally treat one another? You therefore must be teleoi, as your heavenly Father is teleos. Now, this is my own translation of the Greek. And you'll notice I didn't even try to translate one of the words. I left it in the Greek, teleos. In the English translations, it's typically rendered perfection. You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that is accurate in a lexicographical sense. Is that even a word? That is accurate, but it's misleading to the extent that we hear it and we think that Jesus is saying that we must match God's moral and metaphysical impeccability, which is not what Jesus is saying. The word here, teleos, refers to that which is complete, that which is our goal. Uh, and hence we get the idea of perfection, but really this idea of completeness and wholeness, to me, evokes the Hebrew concept and word of shalom. Shalom means peace and justice and wholeness through love. Shalom is non-coercive. And of course, this was God's creative purpose for everything. Shalom through love. That's why God created. And of course, 
Shalom got fractured by our rebellion. And the mission of Jesus is to restore shalom through love. This word here, teleos, is referring to that reality about God, that we have a God of shalom. So you could render this, I suppose, you shall be shalomizers as your heavenly father is a shalomizer, but that's not even a word in English as it turns out. So I didn't even try to translate it, but that's the idea. It's in God's mission, purpose of shalom through love. That's what we are called to imitate as his children. So with that preliminary observation about the translation. Here are eight things I did not want to forget to say today, so I wrote them down. If I was a better preacher, there would be seven things or three things, but I'm not a better preacher, so there are eight things. And each one of these eight things, I warn you, could be a 34-minute sermon, so I'm just going to read them quickly in a disciplined way and try not to get distracted by all the points I want to make. Thing number one, Jesus' mission was about the good news of the kingdom of God. The summary statement of the ministry of Jesus is this, the kairos, the appointed time is fulfilled, so the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. This is the message of Jesus. Point number two, We do not earn our citizenship in the kingdom by complying with rules. The kingdom is a gift and expression of God's love. We can join the kingdom by grace through faith. The offer is there. Point three, the Sermon on the Mount is the manifesto of the kingdom of God. Jesus calls his followers to a distinctive way of life in the midst of a broken and rebellious world. The sermon tells us how we ought to live in response to grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do not miss this. What Jesus is laying out as an ethic for his followers is an ethic that requires grace and supernatural power. You do not have the ability from your own resources to comply in any way with the ethics of the kingdom of God. The ethics of the kingdom of God should force you into deep dependence on the Holy Spirit every day. I said I wasn't going to get bogged down. Point number four, the Sermon on the Mount is not a roadmap for heroic individuals. It is a community or communitarian ethic. The you in the Sermon on the Mount is always plural. We are so individualistic in the way we read everything. Jesus is talking to a community of people. He says, you are the salt You are the light. He means we together. Don't get bogged down. Point five. The command to love enemies is the last of a series of antitheses, contrasting conventional religious and ethical thinking with the radical way of Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus repeats five times, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. And if you study those sayings carefully, about the command not to murder, Jesus deepens it to this command not to be angry, right? The command not to commit adultery, he deepens it to this command not to lust. It's mind-blowing what Jesus does. 
And that goes back to the Holy Spirit stuff I just mentioned to you. Point number six, the command to love enemies is not based on idealistic or naive notions about human nature. The command is not predicated on the idea that people are basically good and that our enemies will love us back if we just love them first. Please understand and do not confuse the ethic of the kingdom of God with utopian progressive delusions. The goal is always reconciliation, but our focus should be on the means and not the ends. The ends belong to God. What I mean is this, for the citizen of the kingdom, the ends never justify the means. I am, I am not responsible for the ends. We are responsible to be faithful every day in what Jesus calls us to do, trusting God for the outcome. It's when we get to thinking that the outcome is somehow up to me that we want to get off the path in order to achieve what we believe is a desirable outcome. Jesus says, here are the means. Trust the Father for the way this works out. Point number seven. The command is based on a thoroughly biblical doctrine of ultimate reality. And by that I mean this. God is ultimate reality. God is love and love wins in the end. Do not doubt it. And for this, let's just take a brief moment and consider the song of the Lamb who was slain. We have these moments in Revelation where we get this glimpse behind the curtain and we're right in the throne room of God. And we see this moment when John the seer is aching to know the meaning and purpose of everything, of history itself, and he knows it's in these scrolls, but there was no one worthy to open the scrolls except one, the lamb who was slain. The whole meaning and purpose of history is unfolded when we see the cross. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. This is the victory song of God. Which brings me to the eighth point. Loving enemies is not some extra job for a follower of Jesus. It is essentially our witness to the gospel because God's love for enemies is the gospel. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, then how much more being reconciled will we be saved, will we be saved by his life? So there you have it, brothers and sisters. 
Uh, I quickly compressed eight sermons worth of biblical theology into just a few moments. But what do we do with it? What do we do with this? What does it mean for us as a community in this crazy time in which we live? I've got three simple steps. No, they're not simple. And they're not steps. This reminds me of Steve Martin, uh, what he once said. uh, I said, uh, I can tell you in two steps how to become a millionaire without even trying. Step one, get a million dollars, right? It was so funny in 1979, I promise you. It's a great line. Maybe he delivers it better. But, but the basic idea is there is no shortcut here. There is nothing easy about this. But I have three thoughts about a daily game plan for us so that we will be ready to respond appropriately when the time comes and somebody needs to be loved who is not that loving to us. Right? Step one. Game for your game plan. Every day, please, get off your moral high horse and examine yourself. Get off your moral high horse. And how do you do that? You need to stop feeding your moral high horse. To the extent that you're that person who is always immersed in social media that reinforces uh, and feeds your sense of moral superiority and outrage at the other guys, you probably should stop doing that. That will destroy you. That will render you incapable of loving as Jesus calls you to love. You cannot follow Jesus when you're riding on a moral high horse. Now, I've got a real source of authority on this, Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King preached a famous sermon called Love Your Enemies. It's a lot better than the sermon you're hearing today, as it turns out. Dr. King, of course, did more than probably any other person in American history to mobilize a group of followers of Jesus to actively love enemies, and trust me, they had enemies. Here's what Dr. King said uh, in his sermon. Now, first let us deal with this question, which is the practical question. How do you go about loving your enemies? I think the first thing is this. In order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing yourself. This should be a daily discipline for every follower of Jesus. A process of honest self-reflection on all that is going wrong in my heart so that I can present that to God. Daily game plan item number two. Soak in the story and meaning of the cross every day. Every day. Because when you do a careful process of self-examination, You should be pulled back to the cross. 
where God has done what God needed to do to liberate us from the consequences and the reality of the sin that indwells us. It is by recognizing we are crucified with Christ. It is by willingly seeing that He died for us so that we can live for Him on a daily basis that we become the type of people who can respond appropriately when others would try to provoke us. Daily game plan suggestion number three. Forgive and seek forgiveness every day. You realize the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that is intended to be prayed every day? The clue in there is it says, give us today our daily bread. That's a little clue. So those of you who, because you don't want to do something the Catholics might do, avoid saying the Lord's Prayer every day, you might consider praying the Lord's Prayer or something a lot like it every day. And what you'll see is that this discipline of forgiveness is a daily discipline for Christians. On a daily basis, we need to seek forgiveness. And on a daily basis, we need to actively be looking for people that we ought to forgive. There is no way that those of us who follow Jesus should be walking around for one extra minute with any unreconciled relationships, at least as far as it's up to us. You cannot be a shalom-izer. You cannot be a person who preaches and lives out the gospel of reconciliation if you yourself have unresolved and unreconciled relationships. Now, the last thing uh, that's been helpful to me as I consider this very demanding call and ethic is to look for good role models. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples uh, today. First is a hero of mine named Will P. Campbell. And I'm just going to read to you a little excerpt from the second greatest book ever written on humility, Get Low by Jack Wisdom. And, uh, and I, I write about Will uh, in this book. I had a chance to meet Will Campbell back in uh, the early 80s. And uh, he was everything that uh, I hoped. Will Campbell was raised on a cotton farm in Mississippi, studied theology at Yale, returned to Mississippi to serve as a Baptist preacher, and rebelled against the unjust status quo of the 1950s by becoming involved as a circuit-writing strategist and activist in the civil rights movement. This, of course, made Campbell a controversial figure in the eyes of many of his Baptist brothers and sisters. But he was sure that Jesus was against racial segregation and for reconciliation. Then in 1962... Campbell began telling his fellow civil rights activist that, quote, the racist is the greatest challenge the church faces today in both the North and the South, the most unlovely and the most in need of love, close quote. Campbell actually shifted the focus of his ministry to Q. Klux Klansmen. He hated what they stood for and what they did, but he loved them for Jesus' sake, befriending them and proclaiming good news about forgiveness and freedom from what he called the old way of the world. Campbell's outreach to the enemy 
made him a controversial figure in the eyes of his fellow civil rights activist. But he was sure that Jesus meant what he said about loving enemies. One of Campbell's former colleagues once asked him, how in the world do you manage to communicate with those brutes? Campbell replied, by emptying the bedpans of their sick. A second role model is a contemporary figure, a woman named Abby Johnson. Abby Johnson was the Planned Parenthood Employee of the Year, I think in 2008, because of the high profits she was able to generate uh, at the Planned Parenthood Center uh, in Bryan College Station. One day, after looking at an ultrasound, it occurred to Abby Johnson that the living organism in the human womb was a human being. And she realized she had to find another way to make a living. Abby had been loved for years by these people who stood outside of her clinic and prayed for her. And those are the people that she went to when she realized she had to get away. Now, Abby Johnson is enemy number one of Planned Parenthood today. But her entire ministry is based on loving the people who work at Planned Parenthood and giving them a way of escape if they want out of that industry. She is an amazing woman who has been spat upon, vilified, and punched and yet she returns prayers in gospel, Jesus-centered encouragement. Now, if you just heard what I said, and you went straight to some political opinion you have, repent. And consider the impact of a person who assembles people to love whoever thinks they might be your enemy. Recently, as a father of daughters, I've been following the trial of that doctor who abused so many young women. And as a father of daughters, I developed certain opinions about what should happen to this man. And I read with some interest what the judge said to him or said about him uh, in the sentencing hearing. Here's what Judge Rosemarie Aquilina said. Our Constitution does not allow for cruel and unusual punishment. If it did, I have to say, I might allow what he did to all those beautiful souls, those young women in their childhood. I would allow someone or many people to do to him what he did to others. I heard that quote and there's a part of me that said, amen. Then I read another quote. Rachel Denhollander, former gymnast. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. 
Ah. Jesus meant what he said. So what does that mean for us? Well, Ecclesia West, there's probably no better way to begin reflecting on that answer than to come to the table together. So thank you, Steve. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.